Last week I asked you if you ever have doubts concerning your salvation. And uh, I explained that uh, probably some of you may have more doubts after uh, our study so far through the book of Hebrews. And the reason why is because of all the warning passages that you encounter in the first part of this book. As we have said, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are struggling in their walk with Christ. They're drifting spiritually. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them for this reason, and he is calling for them to not drift from Christ in the Christian faith. He is writing, he tells them, consider Jesus. Fix your gaze upon Jesus. Don't look beyond Him. Don't turn away from Him. Look upon Him. Abide in Him. Follow Him. Trust in Him. He's writing for this reason. He's writing to catch their attention, to get them back on track and and busy living for God the way they're supposed to live as believers. And to do that, the writer of Hebrews gives them warnings that are meant to cause his audience to pause to see where their life is out of step with God and his word. He warns them to show them how they have drifted from Christ in the Christian faith so that they will respond to these warnings and get busy following hard after Jesus once again. That's why the writer of Hebrews says things like he does in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm till the end. He says, we we are in Christ, we have been made right with God, if we continue trusting in Christ. That shows that that initial decision was legitimate. If we persevere... If we continue to trust, continue to follow. He uses Old Testament Israel as an example, and he reminds his readers of how they perished in the wilderness. They didn't enter God's rest after being delivered from Egyptian bondage, and the reason why is because of their unbelief. He uses that example to warn his readers and to call for them to learn from those past mistakes that were made. And he calls for them to not harden their hearts, to not go astray in their heart, to not have an unbelieving heart and be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. At the beginning of chapter 4, The writer of Hebrews calls for the Jewish Christians in his audience to even question their commitment to Christ so that they will continue to see their need of him and trust in him all the more. He says, be fearful that you may not enter his rest so that you do not fail to reach it. At the end of chapter 4, though, the writer of Hebrews assures his readers that there is, in fact, a Sabbath rest for God's people, for those in Christ. He also gives another warning for pretenders. He makes it clear through his word that God exposes through his word the true thoughts and the intentions of our heart. It's a double-edged sword. It, It cuts deep, exposing what's truly 
there. He says, no creature is hidden from God's sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, we must not be pretenders. He continues with the warnings in Hebrews 6. Remember, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are spiritually sluggish, and he is writing to motivate them to get back on track, get busy, living for God, pursuing godliness, and to do that, he writes a very challenging passage of Scripture where he teaches about apostasy, about those who are numbered among God's people physically but not spiritually, And he warns his readers of those who are with God's people, but not of God's people who fall away. And he writes these things so that, again, they will examine themselves and see their need of Christ and keep trusting, keep believing in him, continue to grow in godliness so that they will have an even greater assurance. And we said last week that though this book, the book of Hebrews, causes us, it should at least, believers, and calls for us to examine where we are or where we are not spiritually, this book is also written to give us assurance. God wants us to have assurance. We learned that in Hebrews 4. After the writer of Hebrews calls for his audience to be fearful that they may not enter God's rest so that they do not fail to reach it, Remember, he says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. So he says, be fearful that you may not enter that rest so that you don't fail to reach it. And then he says, believers, we who have believed, we enter that rest. So on the heels of a great warning, he gives great assurance, doesn't he? And he also does that in Hebrews chapter 6. After giving one of the greatest warnings in Scripture in Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, the writer of Hebrews ends that passage, ends Hebrews 6 with a great word of assurance. He says in verse 9, look at Hebrews 6 verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. See? After a great warning, great assurance. He calls them beloved. Also translated dear friends. After giving the warning about apostasy and addressing how they've been sluggish spiritually, the writer of Hebrews basically says in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, Beloved, I know you're not going to abandon the faith. I know that you are among the faithful. He is confident that his audience is secure, that they're going to persevere. He basically says, beloved, dear friends, we we know you're going to persevere. Though we speak in this way, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Well, we're going to continue on in Hebrews 6 once again this morning. If you're not there yet, get there. We're going to do a brief review this morning of Hebrews 6, 13 through 18. We looked at that last week. And then we're going to really focus our attention in on the last two verses, 19 and 20. Last week we said that this passage of Scripture is one of the great passages on assurance in all the Bible. And the way the, the, the writer gives his readers assurance in this passage is not by focusing on them and upon their circumstances. That's often where we go. But instead, he focuses on the great character of God, the great promises he makes and keeps, and the great work 
he accomplished for us by sending his son, Jesus. So again, on the heels of a great warning passage, God gives a great word of assurance. We see very clearly in this passage, God wants us believers to have assurance when it comes to salvation. God wants us to know that we know that we know that we are safe and secure. Notice some ways God gives assurance. This is a review from last week. Number one, he provides assurance by pledging an oath to his people. In verses 13 through 14, the writer of Hebrews takes us back once again to the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis chapter 22. And he reminds us of the promise God made to Abraham. Remember, he promises to bless Abraham. God does. He promises him land. He promises to make a great nation out of him. And he says through that nation that he's going to create out of Abraham, all nations are going to be blessed. God makes this promise multiple times. And each time he makes it to Abraham, he adds something to that promise that helps Abraham believe it. In Genesis chapter 12, he makes the promise for the first time. In Genesis chapter 15, God enters into an unconditional covenant with Abraham to show him he's going to keep his word and fulfill his promise. In Genesis 17, he gives circumcision as a sign that shows he's going to keep that promise. And in Genesis 22, God swears on his name that he's going to keep the promise. He seals this promise that he makes to Abraham with an oath. And remember in Genesis 22, we said last week, a very important event happens before God makes this oath to Abraham. Remember, God calls for Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And, and that's the event the writer of Hebrews is taking his audience and us back to in Hebrews 6, 13 through 14. Think about the scene once again. Abraham's been waiting years to have a son, like the Lord promised. It finally happens, and while his boy is still young, God tells Abraham to take Isaac to a mountain in the land of Moriah to sacrifice him. God is, has made this promise that Abraham's going to be the father of a nation of people, and who does he have? He's got Isaac. God says, I want you to sacrifice him. Well, Abraham responds in faith. He shows great faith. and In fact, it, it indicates in, in the book of Hebrews that Abraham believed that God would even raise his son from death if he allowed for him to sacrifice him. So he goes through it, and before he's about to commit the act, God says, he interrupts him and says, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him, for now I know you fear God, <clears throat> seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. We're told at that moment, God provides a substitute for Isaac, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac, and Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. And it's on the heels of that ram being substituted for Isaac that God says, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we said last week that the writer of Hebrews is sharing this story to show that God's promises hold in the bleakest of circumstances. Abraham is told by God that he is to sacrifice his son, and that's, that's dark, right? And it's in the midst of this dark and difficult trial that God provides a substitute for, for, for Isaac and reiterates this great promise to Abraham. Boy, what a great reminder to us believers. That should bring us great assurance. No matter what we go through in this life, no matter how dark things get, God's promises remain. Amen? They do. The circumstances in this life never negate the promises God makes. This is a point that God makes over and over again. And notice what he says again. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that God swore by himself to Abraham, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, we talked about last week, it's a bit strange that God swears an oath, right? Why does he swear an oath? Well, why do we swear oaths? Why do we put our hand on the Bible in a courtroom and say, so help me God? Why do we do that? Because we're not always truthful, are we? We, we need some incentive to be honest. And, and perjury, of course, is incentive as well. But we're not honest. Sometimes we're untruthful when we think it's in our best interest to be that way. But God doesn't lie, right? So why does God make an oath? We talked about last week. He doesn't make an oath because his word is weak. He makes an oath because our faith is weak. He makes an oath to give us an even greater assurance. He doesn't swear to Abraham because he's prone to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. But he does it because Abraham's faith is weak. And think about what we've just said about Abraham. If that's true of Abraham, how much more so is that true of us? And what God says and does here with Abraham, the promise he makes, it's important to us as well, believers, because like we have said, and like we're told in this text, we are heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Are we not? Are we a part of the nations? God promised through Abraham this nation would come, and through that nation, all nations will be blessed. And we share, we get to partake in that blessing through, we know, Jesus, right? Through the work he accomplished. Now, we're going to talk about the ins and outs of how he accomplishes that great work in just a moment. But I just want you to get here that the author of Hebrews is reminding of us of this to give his readers assurance. He reminds them God provides assurance by pledging an oath to his people. Second, God provides assurance in swearing by his name. We learn this at the end of verse 13 and down in verses 16 through 18. We learn that God swears an oath by himself. And the reason he swears by his own name is because there's no higher authority by which to swear by, right? God's the highest authority. He is supreme, all-powerful, sovereign God. He swears by himself. And God pledges himself in this oath 
for the purpose of giving his people assurance. Again, the writer of Hebrews is using this Old Testament example to make New Testament application. He is giving this example of how God has dealt faithfully with Abraham in the past so that we would trust him in the present. He says in verse 17, the reason we have this story of Abraham is because, get this, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, that's us, God desired to show to us the unchangeable character of his purpose. It's what he wants us to see. He guaranteed it with an oath. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Abraham's story is meant to give us assurance as believers. It's meant to remind us that God's promises can be trusted. His character has not changed. His purposes remain just as he kept his promise and did not break his oath to Abraham believers. He'll deal with us in the same way. Same God, unchanging. We can have assurance because of God's character, because of the promises he has made, the covenants he has established, and the oaths that he takes. So God gives us assurance by pledging an oath to his people. He gives assurance in swearing by his name. Last thing we see here from this passage is that God provides assurance by anchoring our hope in Jesus. By anchoring our hope in Jesus. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Boy, this is great right here. This this is worth you coming in today, all right? In this passage, we have clearly seen that our hope as believers is not in ourselves but and not in our circumstances but in God right and his promises and the work that he has accomplished and we we definitely see that here in this verse we have seen with the Jewish Christians in Hebrews that their focus was on their circumstances the influences that surrounded these Christians these Jewish Christians in, in he, the, the Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to, these influences surrounding them, their own struggles was causing them to drift spiritually. Okay? I think it's fitting here that the author of Hebrews uses the metaphor of an anchor. He's been talking about them drifting in Hebrews 2. Here in Hebrews 6, he says, we have this promise... This this promise, this oath that God has made as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What do anchors do? Keep boats from moving, right? From drifting. Here the writer of Hebrews tells us that the promise God made to Abraham, watch this, which we are going to see in a minute, is fulfilled in Jesus, keeps us from drifting. It's meant to anchor us. It anchors us spiritually. It helps us when we doubt. It gives us assurance. Notice the next phrase. This is great right here. He says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Believers, he's talking about the Holy of Holies there. In the Jewish temple, there was an inner room in the temple 
It was covered by a veil, by a curtain. It was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth in a powerful and unique. That one then, except once a year, that they were not restricted. And they saw that, and in the very is making about the earthly hope. Sure, there is a chapter of Hebrew on here. He says, Our hope, believers, this promise God has made to us this oath that he is that he has sworn to us that we have laid hold of by faith it anchors us in the heavenly holy of holies in the presence of God himself how about that that is security right there is it not anchored within the heavenly holy of holies how on earth is that possible how can we be anchored there? Verse 20. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, underline on our behalf, and praise the Lord for that, believers. Having become a high priest forever. That's how it's possible. The reason why our hope is anchored within the veil in the presence of God in the heavenly holy of holies is because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great fulfillment to the promise God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 and repeated in Genesis 22. When God the Son became a man, watch this, he was born a Jew, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. He came from heaven to earth, not just to bless the Jews, but all nations. He came to make a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven of sin and made right with God through faith alone in Him alone. He came to provide salvation for all who believe. How did He do it? By becoming our great high priest. Talked about this at the end of Hebrews 4. First of Hebrews 5. We're going to talk about it a whole lot in the weeks to come. First, we establish the fact we're in need of a priest, aren't we? We all need a priest. Whether you realize it or not, it's true. God is clear in his word that we have all fallen infinitely short of his perfect standard. He requires us to be holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect, and we have fallen short in every way of God's glory. We are sinners set against him in our sin. We are in desperate need of someone to stand for us and represent us before God, one who can offer up a worthy sacrifice on our behalf to cover our sins so that we can be forgiven by God and made right with him. The author of Hebrews tells us throughout this book, Jesus was sent for this reason. He was sent by the Father. He came willingly, became one of us, lived for us the perfect life we could never live. Not only did he live a sinless life, a life in perfect fellowship and in perfect relationship with the Father, he also acted as our great high priest he offered the perfect sacrifice for us on our behalf to cover our sins and that sacrifice was his own life he gave he gave his life away he laid his life down for us then he was raised for us he passed through the heavens for us listen Jesus didn't pass through an earthly physical temple through an earthly physical veil into an earthly and physical holy of holies like the earthly and physical priests do. Jesus passed through the heavens for us to take care of our sin. 
We learn in Old Testament, in the Old Testament, that only the high priest was authorized to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is the only one authorized as our perfect high priest to enter into the heavenlies for us. The only one who has done that, who has entered into the heavens for us into God's throne room. He passed through the heavens into God's heavenly temple, into his throne room, directly into his presence. And we're told he is there before the Father all day, every day, forever, as the worthy lamb who was slain. John tells us in Revelation 5, 6, between the throne and the four living creatures, he saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain. Christ is before the Father as the Lamb who was slain. And through Him and only Him, through His person and work, we believers have access to God. By faith alone in Christ alone, because of His person and work alone, we have access to God's throne of grace. And in Him, we are secure forever. Through His blood, He has secured for us an eternal redemption, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus opened up the way. For us to be brought back into God's presence through his life, through his accomplished work, through the work that he is doing right now as our great high priest. Listen, we who are in Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation, trusting in him as our great Lord and Savior, as our great high priest, we are anchored secure within the veil in the presence of God in the heavenly holy of holies. Why? Because we're in Christ and Christ is there for us, therefore we're there. You get it? It's how that works. That is security, believers. Christ's work as our great high priest anchors us within the veil of the heavenly holy of holies. Do you know that truth? And that passage of Scripture is what led Edward Mote to write these lyrics. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds where? Within the veil. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is our great high priest whose work accomplished at Calvary in the heavenlies anchors all those trusting in him in the presence of God. Great word of assurance. Now, we got to ask this question. How does Jesus meet these qualifications as our priest? 
We've talked about this a bit already, but this was a very, very important contextual question in this day that needed to be answered when this letter was written because there were Jews in this day asking this question about Jesus. You see, the high priest of the Jewish people had a certain calling on his life, and he came from a certain family. The author of Hebrews knew he had to answer questions about Jesus' credentials, which is why he says what he does in Hebrews 5, the end of Hebrews 6, and Hebrews 7, and so forth. Remember in Hebrews 5, he tells his readers that Jesus, like the other high priest, was appointed by the Father to represent his people and serve as priest for them by sympathizing with them like the priest did and suffering for them and offering offering sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. He also tells us in Hebrews 5, 6, 6, 20, and Hebrews 7, that Jesus, get this, is from a different order of priest than the Levitical priest from the line of Aaron. You see, Jesus wasn't from the tribe of priests. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi from the household of Aaron. He was from the tribe of kings, from the tribe of Judah, from the household of David. So how... Could he be a priest? We've talked about this a bit before. We're going to talk about it in greater detail in the next couple of weeks. But look at the end of Hebrews 6. The author of Hebrews tells us Jesus is from a different order of priests. Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews, once again is taking his audience back to the Old Testament. And he's taking an Old Testament text and he's applying it to Jesus. He reminds us once again, Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron, but after Melchizedek. Now, who on earth is Melchizedek? Well, he's an interesting character in Scripture. We've talked about him a bit already. Come next week, we're going to learn a whole, a whole lot about Melchizedek. It was a lot of fun doing, doing the study there. He's first mentioned in Genesis 14. He's an obscure character who visits Abraham. We're told that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which many believe to be Jerusalem, before it was Jerusalem, okay? So the king of Jerusalem at the time, and we're told in Genesis 14 that he was a priest of the Most High God. So get this, he's a king and he's a priest. He visits Abraham, blesses Abraham. We're told that Abraham pays him an offering, a tenth of everything. Now, we don't know anything about Melchizedek's family, his upbringing, nothing like that. Some think he's this sort of supernatural character dropped down out of the sky here, but I believe he's a man. One reason why is because he's a priest. We've already said to be a priest, you've got to represent mankind, so you've got to be a man to do that, right? So, so he's a man, but listen. The Holy Spirit writes through Moses in Genesis about him in this obscure way for the purpose of Melchizedek serving as a living illustration of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean Melchizedek is on par with Jesus. That's not what we're saying. What that means is the details mentioned about Melchizedek's life paint a picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Follow me. Think about it. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Sound like Jesus? Yeah? He's the king of Salem, Jerusalem's king. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? 
The word Salem is taken from the same root word as the Hebrew word for peace. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Again, sound familiar? King of the Jews. We don't know anything about his beginning or end. Jesus is without beginning and end, right? He is our king forever, our priest forever. Melchizedek is in a superior position to the patriarch, the first father, Abraham. So is Jesus, right? Though Jesus is Abraham's son, we're told that in, in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. What else did Jesus say? Before Abraham was what? I am. He's Abraham's Lord. Melchizedek is a king priest just like Jesus. Aaron, though he was a priest, was not a king. David, though he was a king, was not a priest. Melchizedek's both. Jesus is both. Melchizedek's priesthood precedes Aaron because he's in a superior position to Abraham. So is Jesus. He's writing here to make the point. Jesus is a superior priest to Aaron. He precedes Aaron. He's greater in title, greater in position than Aaron. Jesus is better. So again, the writer of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is our great high priest. He meets and, and exceeds the qualifications. And here at the end of chapter 6, we learn that he accomplishes a superior work to the high priest of old. Jesus anchors all of those trusting in him within the veil in the heavenly holy of holies in the presence of God himself. Well, believers, we, we have some reasons to be praising God this afternoon, don't we? For that truth right there. He is our great and perfect and eternal priest. To end this morning, I want to ask you whether or not you're trusting in him alone for your salvation. Have you been brought into the presence of God through Jesus? Have you been forgiven of sin and made right with him through Christ? Are you trusting in Christ's person and work alone for your salvation? Are you anchored within the veil in the heavenly holy of holies because you're in Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation? If not, if your answer is no, I want to ask you this morning if you would, forsake your sin, turn to Christ, give your life up and over to him, make him your Lord today. I pray you would if you have not. Would you pray with me?